Welcome to the Upper 90 Football Podcast, providing American coverage and opinions on all things football. I'm Justin Ruderman. And I'm Garrett Post. And today we have a very, very special episode for you as we bring you our first special guest on our podcast ever. It is Aubie from USMNT Dawn. Welcome on. Uh, I'm so happy to be here. You know, I've dreamed of moments like this, you know, for the call up <laughs> to Upper 90. Um, I also want to say that I believe it was JP on the podcast a couple of weeks ago asked you guys when you guys were going to have a guest from the real side of Manchester, hopefully. I'm here to tell you I'm here. I am from the real blue side of Manchester. So we love it. Up. We love it. And yes, as, as I mentioned, uh, Avi has his own YouTube channel and Twitter account uh, at USMNT Dawn. Very knowledgeable uh, on USMNT. If you want his full roster breakdown, it is available on YouTube right now. Great watch. There's a lot of uh, great information there. But we will start off with the first game of the window for the U.S. national team. It was against El Salvador. Uh, there was positives and negatives to take from this game for sure. But it was Anthony Robinson or Jedi Robinson, as he prefers, in the 52nd minute with the solo goal of the game to take home the three points for the national team. Garrett, what are your original thoughts on this first game of the window? I mean, I thought it was a deserved three points, but we definitely could have been better in the final third. I mean, 17 shots, but only five on target. Luckily, Robinson found what would end up being the winner. And he almost had a second as well. Um, you know, good finish from him. I, I just have to say that celebration was actually quite hilarious. I rate it where he did the, the backflip and then pretended to injure himself during the backflip. And then like he was holding his hamstring and then started dancing out of it. It was hilarious. So I just got to say yeah, that. Tim, Tim Way, I thought he was injured, didn't he? Probably. He was, I mean, he was, motioning, he was motioning for the physio if you look at the replay. Yeah, no, <laughs> Tim Way was like actually the whole way had no idea until they were about it like half filled he finally realized that he was joking but the whole time he was like trying to call for a physio to come over and help him with stuff and i think they asked him about it after the game and he just laughed it off but yeah he, he was fully convinced that anthony pulled his hamstring yeah i think i realized it before he did um but yeah i mean it was the the real uh, talking point in the lineup, right, was Jesus Ferreira, who, in my opinion, had a, a really good game. Obviously, he missed a couple of chances, uh, one very, very good chance that he definitely should have put away, right? But for me, his, his link-up play and his movement in behind, running from central out to the wings and then providing uh, an option out there, it's definitely not, you know, that typical number nine play that you expect from from your striker, but it opened up the play a little bit, in my opinion, and I probably would have liked to see Pepe start, but I did. I couldn't complain about the way Ferreira played, even though he did miss the chances. Yeah, I, you know, we had a disagreement about this because I just, you know, as a striker, you can't. I mean, okay, the first chance on his left foot, okay, that's difficult, but the, but the second one was a sitter, and he has to score that if he wants to be a starting striker for the U.S. men's national team. And I agree, his link up was good. Um, and, and he was definitely significantly better than Zardes was against Canada. And we'll get onto that a little later because that was a shocking performance from him. But um, yeah, I, I mean, Ferrero was good, um, but you just, you can't miss those chances in my opinion. Um, and, and I think Pepe will, will probably, as we saw today, will probably be getting the nod going forward as long as Ferrero, you know, is unable to, to put those away. Yeah, Burhalter has said that he doesn't believe anybody has, you know, snatched that 
that number nine spot and claimed it to be theirs. So he's going to keep rotating until somebody does, which I don't know if that's the best solution to that problem, but uh, to me, yeah, Pepe is it's hopefully soon going to take that uh, spot. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I, I'm a little more with Justin on this, where I really did like what Ferrer brought to the table. I just don't think he's, you know, just a pure nine striker. He's more of a false nine or a second striker. And honestly, would work really well with Pepe, as, I mean, Dallas is known throughout the years. Um, to have those two combined, he kind of is more of a supporting role. And I don't think Bearhalter is really going to change his system. So... I don't know where Ferreira fits in that. I do like what he brings, but he's definitely at the same time not going to be the starting nine. And then it was the first time that we saw, what was it, like three years that McKenny, Adams, Musa, Pulisic together started a game. And uh, it, it really is a good thing to see because this is, you know, supposedly and looking to be the core of our national team going forward. Uh, young players, very talented, obviously but they never really get to play together very often because uh, obviously Weston had his, uh, you know, off the field issues. Tyler had his injury issues, Pulisic as well with the injury issues. And then of course we know Greg Berhalter doesn't love starting players three games in a, in a window, especially midfielders. I was very surprising in my opinion to see Weston do that this, um, this window, even though of course he's, he was fantastic in all three games. So definitely, definitely the best player of the window for me. Yeah, and we'll be talking about that a bit more later. I saw Zilla um, sent us a tweet about Wes, and we'll, we'll discuss him more in depth. But I think we can all agree, you know, this was a decent enough performance from the U.S., did what they needed to do, got the win, you know, relatively comfortable, controlled the game for sure. Um, but that was not the case in the second game, Justin, going up to Hamilton, Ontario, to take on the top-of-the-table uh, Canadian national side, Without Alfonso Davies and Estacchio, Justin, this game did not go the United States way. No, it didn't. Uh, not at all. I mean, it was a very stale performance, in my opinion. I mean, there was the idea is we couldn't tell what the idea was really from Greg Berhalter, right? He didn't have a plan besides go attack and, and hopefully we can create something with the talent that we have on the pitch. But besides go down the right wing in the first half, I didn't know what the plan was. Uh, it took Greg Berhalter two days to realize that Canada was playing in a low block. Apparently. Uh, I don't know what he was thinking there. I know uh, Abby definitely has some thoughts on that as well. Uh, yeah. I mean, this whole time I've kind of just been hoping that we'd have a good enough lineup that it would kind of offset Berhalter's tactical deficiencies, but outside of Zardes starting at the nine, I was completely happy with the lineup we put out and it looked awful. So it comes down to Bearhalter and just not being able to know like anything that's going on. It's ridiculous that you don't know the other team's playing a low block until you rewatch the game. I mean, that's what a manager needs to do is in that 90 minutes, realize what the other team's doing and then make that change. And it wasn't some minor change. It was how Canada plays against us. Even in the game at home that we drew with Canada, they were playing more low block, try to counter. And he just can't realize that later. He has to make the changes now. But. Yeah, and yeah, it's not he, like it's it's not a difficult thing to notice. Like, 
they're playing in a low block. Like that's that's really not difficult to see. We had 64% possession in a road game against the team at the top of the table. Like it was quite obvious that's what they were trying to do. And then he and he did nothing about it and it was really effective for them. Um, you know, I thought Tejon Buchanan was a handful all game. We know he's a really, really good player, probably the best player um, that Canada have outside of the two that were missing, you know, obviously Jonathan David as well. Um, but yeah, as you say, Abby, that's just incompetency is what it is. Like, how, how do you not see that until you rewatch the whole game? And then obviously, you know, a lot's being made of his comments about, oh, the performance was good enough to warrant a different result, which I think just none of us agree with because we were just so poor going forward. Yeah, fully agree. I mean, I Canada deserved this win. I, I don't think that there's really much of a debate about that. I mean, we look at it works for him against, you know, the lower teams to just play uh, attacking and just go at the at a block. But you if you're going against a low block against a, a lower caliber side, uh, the talent can shine through. But it, we never see, you know, Mexico play a low block, which is why he's had such great success against Mexico because he doesn't have to adjust as much as he does against other teams. And then he has the talent, but Canada is right in that sweet spot where they will play a low block and they will do it effectively because they have the talent to be able to do it and hit us on the counter. I mean, obviously that first goal, uh, the early goal, very uh, important from Kyle Lahren in the seventh minute, but obviously probably never happens with Stefan and goal. In my opinion, that, that ball out from Turner yeah, is very poor. poor. Yeah. Yeah. And well, then, not even and that. He the, also, he also should have saved it. Yeah, exactly. What it was, I was about to say is that the, I, it's not a great finish, um, but it could it could definitely be saved. Obviously, the um, center, the young center backs pairing, got a little bit confused on the play as well. So I understand why uh, Zimmerman has started the other two games. Obviously, Zimmerman got the captaincy today against Honduras, but it that's not an excuse i mean a mistake mistakes happen you're going to let in a goal and it happens but you have to be able to react and that's what the u.s couldn't do the entire time because once canada had that advantage all they had to do was sit back and there was really no ability uh for the u.s to break it down you saw christian pulisic unable to really get involved he's coming in uh from that left wing he should be sitting much wider right but he's coming deeper into the midfield and congesting that midfield which made it even harder to play through but it, it just wasn't enough because Aronson couldn't create on the on the right wing because that's all we were playing down and just trying to go down with Aronson and then have Dest overlap but I, I know way I thought that he could have had more runs in behind He's, he said, obviously, he wasn't available because of uh, his vaccination wasn't up to par for Canada. But I don't think that that's you know, going to make the difference. It's not about, as Abby was saying earlier, it's not about the, the lineup because the lineup was good enough, good besides Zardes, who we all agree should not be starting, shouldn't even be called up to this national team, right? But it's, it's just not good enough, simply. There's no tactics there for Greg Berhalter, uh, which is why I think, I don't know if everyone agrees, but I think he should be gone. It's just not going to happen, right? I, the U.S. Federation doesn't want to sack him no matter what he does. I think we could have lost 5-0 to Honduras today, and we, he still would have been in, in the job. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the lineup, yeah, obviously Zardes, that's just the kind of the glaring blight here, and I still think the fact that he got called up for this window and Josh Sargent is still sat in Norwich is ridiculous. 
Um, but I, I also don't, I don't really think playing Richards and Robinson together in this game was a good idea. I thought Walker Zimmerman played extremely well in the two games that he did play. And then, you know, his kind of experience with these two young center backs, you could tell was missing because on that first goal with Kyle Laren, both the center backs are touched tight. It's a simple one, two, and they get absolutely burned just, you know, by a little injection of pace from Kyle Laren. If one of them's kind of sitting off a little bit more, there's someone there to sweep that up. Um, so I, I think other than Zardes, I think I would, I would still have Zimmerman starting this game. Or, you know, maybe you bench him for either Honduras or El Salvador if, if uh, Greg is so insistent on not starting him all three games. But I, I think starting that young center back pairing against, you know, two dangerous forwards in Jonathan David and, and Kyle Laring, because we know Kyle Laring's burned us in the past. I, I don't think that was the best decision. Um, but yeah, I think obviously, it really comes back to the the roster in the first place, right? Because uh, John Brooks should be on the roster, and we should not yeah. be just bringing four center backs. I, I know Abby mentioned it in his roster breakdown. You should have be bringing five center backs. There's no reason to only bring four, and much less only one experienced center back. John Brooks can easily slot in and give that experience. I know he's not in the best form at club, but for me, he's he's definitely a. a experienced guy that needs to be brought in at the very least, if not starting. Yeah. There's just a lot of things that bear halter could have done better this window that I think a lot of people call out ahead of time. Uh, going back to what you guys said earlier about him coding, we have a dominant performance is just ridiculous because it shows he only wants to play one way and that's to have possession and that's great, but you have to be able to adapt when somebody is countering your style of play. I mean, a low block is exactly what you want to do against a possession-based team, and you need to learn how to break down that low block. And he just doesn't. He just kind of goes out there, plays his game plan. His plan is just anytime he offers any um, advice to the players, it's just kind of this, oh, go at them, let's go get them. And it doesn't really change how they play at all. So when you're that static, it's really easy for a team to counter. And then with the center backs not having that much experience, I would say, yeah, it's really foolish to not bring somebody like Brooks, especially when you're quoting it on form, but you only bring four center backs. Bring five. Why not? Why not just bring John Brooks? There's no problem with just adding him to the roster. There's no limit that you're going to go over by bringing John Brooks with you. And so it's just really poor management. And I'd also say, with Richards and Miles Robinson not being as familiar with each other, I think we've seen them play together like once. And Richards has been starting games in the Bundesliga for probably a, at least a year now, yep. I think. And so at this point, for them to only have played one time together before you throw them out here in a really hard game away against Canada is ridiculous. Like they need to have that chemistry beforehand. And it's just, there's so many mistakes that Bearhalter makes and he doesn't change it until after. And I wonder like, does he have the ability to catch things on the fly? Because going back to his comment about realizing low block afterwards, he always makes his realizations way too far down the road and it's just not sustainable. Yeah. And I, I mean, that it's a great point because those two center backs, I mean, that could be our center back pairing for a long time to come. Right. As two very young, talented guys, um, but they need that experience and they need to understand how to play with each other. 
who who steps forward, who drops back in when when we're being you know hit on the counter, where where your center back is going to be, where he's going to be as a second defender. These basic things need to be sorted out. I mean, and yeah, just the, it's it's basic stuff that Greg needs to figure out. And when Stephen A. Smith, Michael Wilbon, and Tony Kornheiser are getting at you for your management, uh, you know you're doing badly because those guys just don't know anything about football and, and they can figure out that you don't know what you're doing. That Stephen A. clip was hilarious, by the way, him talking to Taylor Twalman. That, that was so funny. Yeah, and you're, and you're right. If Stephen A. is criticizing you, then, then oh, man, yeah. That's, that's not a good look because it doesn't, it, it doesn't take – someone who knows anything about this sport to realize that if you're, if you lose two nil, it's pretty dumb for you to say that you dominated, especially when you didn't. Right. Yeah. I mean, this, the stat that all I need to hear is that's the first time we've lost to Canada in world cup qualifying since 1980. I obviously this is the best Canada team probably of all time, but that's just unacceptable, simply unacceptable. And we, I, we both predicted Garrett two nil. We just predicted the wrong way, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I also don't think we predicted that in you know, arguably the, the biggest game. Well, one of the biggest games of qualifying that we'd have Jossie Zardes Carson Galaxy reject up top. So. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean. Yeah, I, I was after this game that Pulisic got a lot of uh, hate, right? Because he didn't play well uh, against El Salvador and then he didn't have a, a good game either against Canada. As I was saying earlier, I think it's the, partly the system uh, because he was just left alone on that left wing and, and tried to come inside to get more involved. But it's it, it definitely wasn't uh, his window, was it? And then he got benched against Honduras. Obviously did come on to score, but... Yeah, I think it's. I think it was a game where uh, Weston McKinney again was showing his class. I, I know that there's a lot of love for him, but <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean, and then yeah, Tyler Adams, of course, getting uh, that late hamstring injury, so he was unavailable uh, against Honduras as well. Let's move Which... on to that Honduras game, Justin. So we are recording this directly after full time, essentially. A bit of a rotated lineup. As we said, Walker Zimmerman came back in. Um, Dest dropped to the bench for the first time. It, it was Reggie Cannon playing right back. Um, and then a midfield three of Wesson. Obviously, you said surprise that he uh, played in all three games. Um, but he was phenomenal. And I think his selection was definitely justified. And then next to him, was we, we had Luca De La Torre getting a start. And then Kellen Acosta, who we will, I'm sure, talk about because he played really well. And then a front, the, front three of Wea, Pepe, and Jordan Morris, which is an interesting inclusion. Oppie, what were your thoughts on the lineup for this game? Obviously, going up against the team, rock bottom of the table. Um, what were your thoughts? Uh, I mean, kind of working with uh, a limited group here because of Adams and Richards both being injured in the past game. Um, I feel like the back line was pretty good. You know, of course, I think all of us would prefer to have Dest out there to cannon, but it makes sense that Dest is going to get a rest here. He's been pretty injury prone, so don't play him three games in a row. Um, and then with the midfield, I feel like, again, he did the best with what he had. We could make the argument that, you know, he has to set up what he has by calling in his squad for these games. But 
he does the best with what he has available. And then up top, I thought he got mostly right, but Jordan Morris is a ridiculous selection in my opinion. Like I, I don't even know if he should be with traveling with this squad, let alone starting or even getting minutes in these games. And it's just ridiculous for him to be out for so long, come back from an ACL injury, play a couple games for Seattle, and all of a sudden slap him right in there for a World Cup qualifier when you have someone like even Brendan Aronson on the bench. Fully agree with that. Yeah, I, I can't say more about Jordan Morris. I don't know why he's starting a World Cup qualifier. Um, I, it's, I always liked him at Seattle originally, but that was before the two ACLs. It's, he's been a, a completely different player since, obviously. Um, but, you know, Burhalter loves his MLS guys, so even if they're maybe not the correct picks, he'll bring them anyway. Um, I mean, I don't think Morris was particularly bad. He almost had a goal. He had a nice little cut inside, kind of hit it straight at the keeper. But but it's not like Brendan Aronson had played, you know, full 90s in the in the two games before, right? He did not start against El Salvador and then got subbed off against Canada. So he he had played less than two full games um, and, you know, played like less than a game and a half. So why he wasn't starting, yeah, it doesn't really make any sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I will disagree with you about Morris playing poorly, though. I, I think he was the worst player on the pitch uh, today by by a good margin, actually. Uh, I, I think he was completely uninvolved. Obviously, he almost got that lucky goal where it just kind of fell to him, and he kicked, he's, but he shot it right at the keeper. Um, I, yeah, I just, he shouldn't be starting. It, it gets on my nerves to see him start when we have players like uh, Aronson on the bench, who's to me is extremely talented and just needs more and more time because uh, he'll develop. Obviously, we got the Pepe start, as you mentioned, uh, which I would have liked to see against Canada. Uh, not that he played particularly well, probably was uh, the second worst after after Morris, just because uh, he wasn't too involved. He had that near bicycle kick that would have been audacious if he had had scored it. But yeah, definitely not his his best game just because there wasn't an enough link up for him, but it was, I mean, again, it was, it was the midfield shining for me today because as you mentioned, yeah, Weston McKinney, it is what we expect from him, right? It is extremely consistent uh, with his performances and just his, his spatial awareness. I know me and Abby have been watching the games together, talking about it constantly because he will just turn and into space away from two or three guys that it looks like they're, you know, they've trapped him, but he finds a way through and, and it's, he knows exactly where the space is without looking it, it's behind his head and he understands uh, that space and just, you know, a little flick and he's away ball progressing and then finding a pass. Uh, Luca De La Torre. I mean, I was very happy uh, to see him get the start. I think it, he, he really deserved this chance. It was his first start for the national team, obviously uh, in a world cup qualifier, not the biggest world cup qualifier, but still a big game for him to, to start. And I don't think uh, with, uh, with Tyler Adams out, obviously, and um, Musa having played the previous two games. So you're giving Musa a rest for De La Torre, which I totally understand. And, and I like, and he played extremely well, in my opinion, doing very similar things to Weston actually in his ball progression. Uh, and you just play on the ball, he would progress it, you know, 20, 30 yards, just dribbling ahead. And then he'll play a, a very slick ball uh, through the lines, probably down, down to the one of the wings is, is what he was doing a lot. So I really like to see him play. And then obviously you mentioned Kellen Acosta, who 
as as an LAFC fan, right? I love to see him starting and not only starting, but playing very well. Uh, I know a lot of people were calling him his the man of the match for them because he, he was just all over the place. Obviously, he got uh, the first assist for the Weston McKinney goal uh, off, off the free kick. Weston with a, a clinical header, as he's been doing repeatedly for Juve. And then he, he, in my opinion, he should get that assist for the Walker Zimmerman goal. Uh, it came off the defender, so he won't actually get credited. But he, he created that one too. So it's, it's not just his you know, defensive work rate or his ball movement and, and being able to switch the play, which uh, was, was finally evident, which I was calling for against Canada repeatedly. Switch the ball, switch the ball. I believe we switched the ball maybe twice. Uh, in the entire game against Canada, both in the first 10 minutes of the second half, it's just, we're just sitting and, and not, you know, spreading the ball around, which Kellen Costa did beautifully today. So I was yeah, raving about him because yeah, as an LAFC fan, obviously I can't wait to see him play uh, in the black and gold Jersey. Yeah. Um, with that midfield, I thought as well that they were what carried the game today. I mean, Weston McKinney just, as we said earlier, like probably the player of the window for us, just he's in incredible form. Um, just everything that he does, like those turns are crazy because they look so simple because it's just basic turns, but it's just having that spatial awareness, you know, where players are closing down. Um, I mean, there were points during the um, first game in the window where he had maybe like four players chasing after him and he would just get away from them every time without losing the ball. And yeah, I, I don't know what else can be said about Weston at the moment. He's playing near perfectly for us. And if it wasn't for him, we'd be in a much worse situation. Uh, Luca De La Torre, very well-deserved um, for him to get a start. He was playing really well uh, at getting out of space, like out of pressure, um, which we haven't seen very much from a lot of our midfielders that aren't MMA. Um, specifically a certain someone named Legette. Uh, so it's very interesting because I believe Bearhalter said one of the times he didn't call Luca De La Torre up, and I think he also included Conrad in his quote. But specifically, De La Torre said he wasn't good in transitional play, which we looked like we were playing a lot of transitional play, and it was revolving around De La Torre today. So I'm glad that he went out there and proved a lot of people wrong. Uh, hopefully there won't be so much hate on him from certain crowds uh <laughs> and then Kellen Acosta of course you know we saw the return of Gold Cup Acosta today like I'd say even better than Gold Cup um probably his most impressive performance for the U.S. and you know if he can keep that up I don't see any reason why he shouldn't be on the roster we just need to see that more consistently from him because if he can bring that every game he's going to be incredible depth for us so and just quickly yeah, I mean, on that uh, legit point, Luca De La Torre has stolen his number 17 number, right. which I love to see. I just Best number in the oh world. God. So. Exactly, yes. As, <laughs> as someone number. who has worn 17, it's yes. so great to see. As De someone who wears 17 right now. Back, yeah. Yes, both, both of these, uh, Garrett and Avi, wear the number 17 when they play. So they're uh, loving that because, yeah, legit does not deserve that yeah, number. Our number has been reclaimed. I'm so happy. <laughs> Oh, but it's just, it's just another point. As Hobby said, I mean, that quote is evident because 
it's it shows Greg Berhalter's complete unawareness of his own team and his own players because Sebastian Legette, what does he do? He's a back pass merchant. All he does is retrieve the ball and play it back to his center backs. I thought you he said he's never... a famous girlfriend merchant, Justin. He's both. He's both. But, I mean, the only reason he's on the roster is because of his famous girlfriend and also because <laughs> Greg Berhalter has no awareness of tactical play and no awareness of how his players play because – what does Legette do? He plays backwards. What does Luca De La Torre do? He he progresses the ball. Like to say that to say the complete opposite is just really mind-boggling. It makes me think I could take somebody off the streets of LA and they'll be a better coach than him. Yeah, I mean, I I was a little bit um, unsure when I saw De La Torre in the lineup. Um, you know, I haven't. I'm not gonna be out here and pretend like I've been watching a whole bunch of Eredivisie and how he's been doing out there. But no, he did impress me and, and he was really progressive, as you say. So yeah, those comments from Greg um, don't make much sense, but that, I think that's something that we're, we're used to at this point, um, which is sad, right? We, we should be expecting more um, and it's would be a shame, you know, to not get the best out of this golden generation, if you will, because of such an incompetent manager. So hopefully you know, I think we all agree Greg's not leaving before the World Cup, so hopefully after, um, but we'll see about that. But I, I did just want to say, yeah, De, De La Torre did, did really well, in my opinion. Um, so definitely better than Legette, you know, disgracing the beautiful number 17. So, And as if we haven't hit on Greg enough, him taking pictures with fans during the game? <laughs> what? Like, there was a just, stoppage what in are play, you to be fair. There was a stoppage no, there's in play. No, there's no, there's but... no to be fair. You, do, you need to pay attention. This is why you don't know how your players play, because you're not watching the game. <laughs> I, no, I, I agree that was dumb. A European but... manager. Yeah. Just doing this in the middle of a club game, they'd probably be out of the club within the next week. Like, <laughs> True. I mean, would you ever imagine that? No, it would never no. happen. No, it wouldn't disgraceful that's all i can say and then, and then the usmnt twitter account you know tweets it out bragging about it oh as god if it's a good thing yeah they also tweeted out more goals than degrees which yeah that's something we should be bragging about playing in minnesota and oh, oh yeah that's something idea, we haven't guys. even talked about yeah we i can't believe we haven't mentioned that yet how idiotic is that man it's so dumb like you could tell i mean honduras hated it and you could tell that they hated it but i mean we're, but that's, we're a better team than them in general. So, like, there, there's no need to, you know, try to use cold as a factor in our favor. It, it, you know, I think it probably is more of an equalizer, if anything, because, you know, we're not going to play at our best either in, in the cold. Obviously, we're more used to it and, you know, embraced it a bit more, have been playing in the cold weather and training in cold weather. Meanwhile, Honduras, you know, did not whatsoever, did not travel early. They, they stayed down there in the 80-degree humidity and whatnot. Um but it's just so stupid and so ill-advised to be playing in, in that weather this time of year, you know, ridiculous. Yeah, it actually, uh, just before the game started, they interviewed the Honduras manager about the weather, and he said, it's not normal, it's inconceivable that a power in every sense would bring you here to play a game and get a result. The game hasn't started, but I can't wait for it to end because it's not for enjoying, it's for suffering. And I mean, he's right. It's absolutely ridiculous that we have to take a team that's bottom of the table. Their goal difference is negative 17. So before the game, it would have been negative 14. 
they're conceding at least one goal a game. And it's just ridiculous that we have to take them all the way to a freezing Minnesota where players have to have literal NFL quarterback hand warmers to play. And that we have to go there to keep our stadium filled and to win a game. It's just really sad. Absolutely. And then, yeah, I mean, on, on the point of those, they concede goals, right? So we, we know that, but it is good to see us finally scoring uh, in the first half, right? That is the first time we've scored two goals in the first half since Martinique, which is, I mean, Martinique. Okay. But the, that wasn't even our A squad since the first time we've scored two goals with our A squad since what, November, 2020, was it? Yes. It was November, 2020 in the Panama six, two friendly. That was the last time our age. So friendly, not even a competitive the, match. Yeah. It's it's ridiculous, that, but good to see, I guess, that we can finally do it. And then, of course, Christian Pulisic off the bench. He gets fouled within five seconds of touching the pitch uh, and, and then is able to find a goal. He actually found a second goal, but it was it was offside on Aronson. Um, so maybe quieting the haters a little bit. But yeah, I mean, I got to say, Justin – I tweeted, or I texted you rather. I texted yep. you, and I said, "Oh, I said, okay." I saw Christian's coming on. I said, "Okay, it's time for Christian to bag, and uh, and start getting back on the, on the right path." You know, um, what, what were the exact words? I said, "Time for Christian to bag and get back on track." Right, and then go on, Christian lad. End this within like a minute. He scores. Yeah, first touch gets hacked, wins a free kick in a dangerous position. Second touch finds the back of the net on a really nice finish too. But it's also interesting that we had not scored a single goal on a set piece in what, uh, 13 games was it that, that we had played thus far? Sorry, 10 games that we had played. We had not scored a single goal on a set piece. And then obviously we talk about us being so god awful in the first half. And we scored two set piece goals in the first half. And then a third, because Pulisic was a set piece, came off of Walker Zimmerman's quad, and then Pulisic just hammered it in the bottom corner. So uh, it, it was a pretty unorthodox way for Greg Burhalter's, you know, one of Greg Burhalter's teams to find a win. Um, so, yeah, definitely breaking precedence a little bit. And so with all that said, we look at the table now. Um, we're sitting in second place, two points behind Canada. Um, And currently Mexico are drawing nil nil. So they would be two points behind us. Um, So not, not a lot of breathing room there at all. And we have one last window, Justin and Abby, how are we feeling going into that? Um, You know, firstly, how happy are we with this window in general, two wins and a loss? Um, Is it going to be good enough to to give us reasonable breathing space um, in the next window? Um, And just kind of what are your thoughts after these three games in general for how our chances are looking going forward. Yeah. Um, I, I would say that we're looking pretty good in terms of qualifying. Uh, for me, it's just not been about just barely qualifying. Like I've really gone into this uh, before I think September was our first game. And I thought we should have really made a statement and topped uh, the table. It's looking a little sketchy for that at this point. Um, right now it's just more of a battle for will we automatically qualify or are we going to drop down into that fourth spot and have to go to a playoff against New Zealand, which I think we'd still win. But the fact that we're barely getting by, it's we're going into the final window and it's already not cleared up is honestly kind of embarrassing because 
sure there's Canada and Mexico that are good teams, but really we've dropped points where we sh- shouldn't have. And I mean, Canada's doing what we should do without the players that we have. So in terms of qualifying, yes, we're doing fine, but I think this team needs to aim higher than that. And right now they're just not hitting that. So overall with the window, we walk away with six points. I thought it was probably one of our easiest windows because we have two home games against two of the worst teams. And then the away game against Canada, sure it's tough, but Canada's an environment we're a little more used to than going down into Central America. And also they're missing Gustacchio and Davies. We had no reason to walk away with as low as six points in my opinion. And as we speak, Canada have just taken a 1-0 lead over El Salvador. So that moves them up to 25 points currently, four points clear of us. So yeah, it definitely seems like finishing first is not an option. And I agree with you, Abby, that we should be aiming higher than just qualifying. But um, obviously qualifying is still a big deal considering uh, what happened last time around. Um, So... I, I do agree with you, but at the same time, I think just seeing, you know, U.S. clinches World Cup berth is going to be a huge sigh of relief for everyone around this country. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I, I see both points. I mean, obviously we need to qualify, but that number one spot is important, right? We want to have the best group possible in the World Cup, uh, so we want to be in the highest pot possible. But it's it's just, I mean, this it is the loss to Canada, that, right, that really puts us out of it because we basically have the same uh, – uh, window next time except we have a little bit harder right we both play costa rica we both play panama and then we play Jama- we play mexico whereas they play jamaica so uh, an easier window for them as well there's very little likelihood we can see uh in catching them and that mexico game uh will probably you know come down it, it, the the second place will come down to that who can take second place uh, obviously, the Panama are, are on the heels of whoever loses that game, if, if it were to be a loss, trying to uh, catch us up because, you know, they're on 17 points with uh, 10 games played. So they're not far behind at all. So it, it, it really is a little bit tight, except it really doesn't seem like we're going to get that number one slot. It seems Canada have, have locked that up pretty much. I think that Panama game is going to be huge, right? Because beating them would go a long way to to go say that, you know, okay, even if we do lose to Mexico, which is obviously a distinct possibility considering who our manager is, um, and and obviously Mexico is Mexico. They are a good team. Um, But beating Panama, who are in that fourth spot right now, would, you know, be really helpful to make sure we don't have to go to that playoff against New Zealand. Obviously, I think that's unlikely to happen. But I look at those three games and I just can't help but think, you know, Panama is kind of the make or break game in this final window. Yeah, you're absolutely right with that because we're sitting on 21 right now and Panama, if they do end up tying Mexico here, um, they'll be at 18. So should those results hold, um, a win against Panama is going to put us six points ahead. And then with the two other games, that means the only way they beat us is on goal differential, I believe. And I mean, we're, we're on nine, they're on two. So that is a game that would effectively give us that top three. But I think every game next window is really important because we're going up against the third, fourth, and fifth best teams. I mean, we just came out of a window um, against Canada and 
two of the bottom three and only pulled six points. Now we have to go on the road to Azteca and Costa Rica. And then we're bringing Panama back here. And what you said is going to be a really tight game because everyone's World Cup spot is on the line in that game. So, yeah, I think everyone is important. But if we get a win against Panama, that'd be a very, very, very big deal. Yep. And we will play Mexico uh, first in, in the next window at Azteca. So we will probably know who's most likely to win that second spot by the time that we play Panama. Uh, say we were to lose to Mexico, that, that Panama game then yeah really becomes make or break uh, at that point. But yeah, it seems, it seems unlikely that we would uh, have to play New Zealand in that, in that uh, you know, play-in, but you never know. You never know, right? We we have a little bit of trauma as U.S. fans, so we get scared even in, even in the small possibilities. It was Atiba Hutchinson with a goal for Canada, by the way. Um, interesting name to be on the score sheet for them, but I, I think we do just got to mention, like, yes, we should be top of the table, but Canada have been playing exceptionally well. The only team not to lose a game, uh, you know, everyone else has lost two or more. Um, with ourselves in Mexico both losing too. So I, I think seeing Canada in the World Cup will be quite interesting. Um, and so, you know, I, I'd love for Mexico to drop into that fourth spot and lose to New Zealand. That would be phenomenal. <laughs> I'm not too upset about, about Canada getting in the World Cup. I, I think that that'll be something that'll be interesting to see. And obviously, you know, we all want Alfonso Davis uh, to get back out on the field as soon as possible. I all, Okay, also, I keep saying Davis because I'm so used to the IES with Tom Davis at Everton, Tom Davis, yeah. which, is, which is pronounced weirdly for some reason, not Davies. And so then I end up saying Alfonso Davis, but it's Alfonso Davies. So apologies. You're fine. Don't worry about it. We, we know who you're talking about there. Uh, but yeah, it, it, I think that, yeah, most... Most U.S. fans care a little bit about more about beating Mexico uh, than than Canada, but that's maybe why we have we we weren't able to beat Canada, right? Because it, it wasn't enough uh, from Berhalter to figure that out. And with that, I, I think we can move on, Justin, into one of the you know probably the other big talking point that we have this week, which was that the transfer deadline did just pass a couple days ago. Um, and there were, you know, there was a reasonable amount of activity. There was a good amount of money spent. Obviously, a lot of that came from Newcastle with, you know, some big acquisitions from them. So we, we have a list here, Justin. We also have a few questions. We did reach out for some questions about uh, both the transfer deadline day and uh, the USMNT's window in general. Um, where should we start, Justin? Yeah, well, we, we pretty much just talked about, you know, Zilla's question about, uh, the, the three matches coming up, very crucial for qualification, obviously. Um, and then, yeah, we talked about his, his take that Weston McKinney is USMNT's best player. We could, we could talk about that a little bit. Um, for me, for me it's, it's the idea of what is considered the best player because I think that he's obviously extremely talented and he's probably our most consistent player at that, at that top level. Uh, I think Tyler Adams is, is consistent, but at a slightly, slightly lower level, obviously very close. But uh, it, is, it is that Pulisic is, to me, at least the most talented player, undoubtedly. But it's that there's, there's not consistency there for sure, right? Uh, obviously, the first two games of this window, not much. And then he got benched. He did come off to score, as we said. But 
Uh, it, it hasn't been consistent for club or for country. Uh, and so that's where I, I know that Zilla has his issues with uh, consistency. And that's why he uh, favors Weston because as he'll say, he knows exactly what he's going to get from them, from him each, each game he goes out. You don't know that uh, with Pulisic. Um, but yeah, I, I know Abby definitely will have some thoughts on this one as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're pretty right on that is that Pulisic has this really high potential and I used to think that way a lot about this, but more and more with McKinney's consistency, I'm starting to lean towards, okay, maybe that's not such an unreasonable take because he's just been so consistent, so well-rounded. He's at the top levels like Pulisic is. You know, he's doing it for Juventus week in, week out. He's been one of their stronger players. So, I mean, at first I would say that, like, oh, he's my favorite player, but now I'm starting to see a little more reasonably that, he might be our best player, but of course, that's also up to Puli and if he's going to fill that potential or not. So, what about you, Gary? Here, here's you yeah. Here's what I'll say. Uh, no, it's still Christian Pulisic in my mind. It, <laughs> there's just go. a lot of there's just a lot of other factors that <laughs> are, are coming into it. Would I say that McKinney's been the best performer across World Cup qualifiers thus far? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, he's been playing the best for the USMNT at the moment, but he's not the USMNT's best player. You got to think about the fact, you know, Pulisic has had struggles with injury and we know that, but also, you know, McKinney is consistently has the same role every week playing for Juventus and, and, you know, he's doing the same things. And there's a reason, you know, the back post header that we saw today is becoming his trademark because he's doing it for Juve and he has the same, you know, expectations and in where he's playing and what his role is every week. Meanwhile, Christian Pulisic is, you know, in and out of the Chelsea squad with injury. And then Thomas Tuchel's play has played him at striker right wing and right wing back within the space of a month. Like it, it, he has no consistency. I don't, I think he needs to leave Chelsea personally um, is, is my opinion. Um, There's and, a and so I think, I think that's part of what's playing into the fact that, you know, I agree that McKinney has been performing better for the U.S. than Pulisic as of late, but Pulisic is the better player. He's just not being put in a position to succeed, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And then, uh, yeah, to me, it's, it's yeah, talent is, is Pulisic, consistency is McKinney. And for me, I don't know if this is a hot take, but uh, potential is Gio Reyna. Uh, he wow. to me he he can he can uh, become the best player on our team, and I think he can you know supersede McKinney and S. I mean sorry supersede Pulisic in a similar uh, type of player right out out wide who can also play uh, as a ten if need be. But yeah, I I just think his, his talent is so good that he can become one of the best players in the world if he can reach that potential. Uh, I think obviously we all hope that will happen. And then quickly, I, this, this wasn't a topic that was given to us, but I wanted to bring it up because the captaincy of the U.S. men's national team is a question for me because it, it's similar to what Greg was saying about the, the striker. Nobody's claimed it, so he keeps rotating it. I don't like that. I don't understand rotating your captaincy every single game. You've seen Pulisic have it. You've seen Weston have it. You've seen Tyler had it today. Walker Zimmerman had it. I... I don't understand why you don't pick a captain and have that be your leader in my personal pick would be Tyler Adams, because I, I think his leadership is, is great. I think that he's not necessarily the most outspoken like Weston is. So I Weston would be my, my second choice. Uh, but I think that when you have a player that 
uh, is cleans up messes and is also not the most talkative, but when he speaks, everyone will listen because of that. Uh, I think that is the perfect choice. In my opinion, uh, Walker is obviously has, has, you know, experience and all that, but he's, he's not the level that needs to be from our captain in my opinion. So I'm curious to see here what you guys think on that, because I just don't like rotating uh, captaincies. And I don't think Pulisic is really a, a talker either. Obviously we've just discussed that. We think he's our best player, but I don't think that his leadership uh, as far as vocally is necessarily captain material. Yeah. So um, I, I would completely agree with that in terms of your selections, like, Adams being number one and then McKinney being number two. Uh, I mean, they're both leaders. I think Adams is a bit more of like a, a silent leader, but, and Weston can be a bit more, you know, goofy. So Adams <laughs> is a little bit of a better pick there, but I think they're both really good um, options for a captain. Like if Adams has to sit this game, Weston's there. And I think those two could cover most games. I don't think you're going to see many games where neither of them are starting. And Pulisic, of course, like, even though he is arguably our, you know, most people would say he's our best player, that he's not the kind of star player that he's going to lead the team. He needs to be able to do his own thing. He's not really as concerned with leadership. So, yeah, I, I completely agree that Pulisic is probably our best player, but at the same time, he's not really near the captain conversation in my opinion and then the same thing with Zimmerman is yeah he was just kind of there for experience but if you're going to call an experienced center back to be a uh, captain I would think it would be John Brooks but again you know maybe he isn't we don't see what goes on by, behind closed doors so maybe he doesn't have that leadership mentality but yeah I think it should be Adams and Weston I disagree with both of you wow um, um, I think Tyler Adams is not a bad shout. Personally, I, I don't think Weston should be there. Um, I mean, just, the, you know, during this World Cup qualifying campaign, broke rules, got punished. You're then going to turn around and hand him the captaincy like three months later. That doesn't make much sense to me. Uh, you know, maybe in the future. Um, I think John Brooks is not a bad shout. Um, you know, very experienced player. Obviously, you know, played in the 2014 World Cup. I believe he's the only player left in the squad who played in that World Cup. Um, and, but then if you're looking at experience and you say, oh, you know, Tyler Adams is more of a silent leader, but I could see that with Pulisic too, because, you know, when he's at his best, he, he is the best American player, in my opinion, we've ever seen. Um, I think he has to be in the conversation, um, even if you don't give it to him, you know, as the first spot. I, I think saying he's not near the captaincy, I don't agree with that. Um, you know, he has 18 goals for the USMNT now. He's been playing, starting for the USMNT. He's been the USMNT's best player since he was 18 years old. Um, I, I think he has to be in the conversation. Obviously, less so right now when, when his performances don't quite, you know, in, in the past, his performances have been like, you know, he's leading by example. He doesn't need to be as vocal. Obviously, right now with the inconsistency, that, that's not quite the case. In the future, I think it will be. And I still think that he is the natural leader of this team, this country. He is the best American player of all time already, in my opinion. And so I think he needs to be at least, at least considered. Yeah. I mean, I, I would personally put him in that third spot, um, but I get, I get the, um, the backing of him for sure. He 
yeah, as you say, since probably 17 years old, he's been the best player on the team. But yeah, I don't know. To me, being the best player doesn't always warrant the captaincy armband. But no, I it's that among other things. You want it. Right. right. I, I think I my, my yeah. It. I I think Ty, I think in no particular order. I don't know if I could put them in an order. But I think it's Brooks, Pulisic, Adams for me as the top three, and then maybe Weston after that. Yeah, yeah, I understand your point about uh, you know Weston being a little bit of a wild child, so maybe not give him the give him the ban because of that reason alone. Um, but yeah, we can we can move on to talk about uh, some of the transfers that have been going on. I think you know a good place to start with would be your club, Garrett, because they've been making moves, haven't they? Uh, big moves. Not only have they brought in a manager in Frank Lampard, they've brought in two. Uh, arguably star midfielders in Donny van de Beek and Deli Ali. Uh, both of them, obviously Frank Lampard had a massive hand in. He, he immediately got to work uh, and, and bringing them in. Dan, Donny van de Beek being a, a season long loaner until the end of the season uh, because Manchester United did not want to buy option, of course, because they don't even know who their manager is going to be next season. And Deli Ali though is a permanent transfer uh, with very, confusing details on what the money will be right so tell us your thoughts about about those Garrett and and any more information you have on them okay so I'll start with Lampard because uh without him the other two don't happen and I think he is the most important of the three obviously he's the manager um I think he was the best option that we had to be honest we were all kind of freaking out because there's all this talk about oh Mashiri is ignoring the rest of the board and is going to point Vitor Pereira which would be an absolute disaster and also we all believed it because it's not and you know it's, it's something Mashiri would totally do right he doesn't like listening to people who actually know about football he does whatever the hell he wants and and you know how is that look working out for you Farhad we're sitting in 16th place you spent 500 million and we've gotten significantly worse since you bought the club so um uh, it, it sounds like Denise Barrett-Baxendale, the, the CEO, and um, the other members of the board as well. You know, Graham Sharp was appointed recently. Tim Cahill actually is getting involved now as well, which is good to hear. Um, you know, really strong presence in, in the Everton community as a former player. Um, and, and I think Lampard is the best appointment we could have made. Um, I, I was happy with it. Um, you know, obviously he doesn't really have – experience in a relegation battle but i also think you know yeah he made all those big money transfers and then chelsea did not do well um under him but i think he's been written off too much for that to be honest because he assembled a squad you know only had one transfer window and assembled a squad that with a different manager who i think just tuchel fit the squad better than lampard did won the champions league like six months later and people are saying like oh you know he had a Champions League winning squad in ninth, but I don't think that's the right way to look at it. You know, I think it's that he, he built a Champions League winning squad, just needed a, a different, you know, style of manager to, to get the best out of it. And that's what happened. But at the same time, we think about the fact that, you know, the expectations for Chelsea going into Lampard's first season there when they lost their, you know, best player by far in Ed Nazard and couldn't bring anyone in other than they had obviously Pulisic come in because they had agreed the deal for him in January of the season before. 
and, and they finished fourth. And he had a lot of young academy players coming up, and, and he got the best out of them. You know, Tammy Abraham was banging in goals for fun. Uh, scored, what, 16, 17 in the league? Obviously, we saw the emergence of Reese James. We saw Mason Mount move from Derby to Chelsea and immediately hit the ground running and just play amazingly. And now, you know, he's one of the best midfielders in the league. Um, and he's, you know, still only, what, like 21, 22? Um, so in terms of youth development, I'm really excited about it because um, I, I am a huge proponent of Anthony Gordon. And I think that he needs to be kind of a central figure of, of pushing this, this club forward. Um, you know, you look at teams that have risen from being, you know, more in the mid table area up into those European spots. And you look at key Academy players that they've been able to build around with Tottenham, you have Harry Kane and obviously Deli Alley, who I'll talk about in a minute. Um, but also with West Ham right now, right? Who is the this most central, important player of their team? It's Declan Rice, an academy player. Um, it's the same thing. Um, and so I really hope that Anthony Gordon, you know, only 20, so much talent. I think Lampard could be a really, really good manager to, to get the best out of him and to refine him going forward and turn him into a crucial player for this squad. And he was even playing well under Benitez. And that's how you know that, okay, this kid's got something about him because he's got a <laughs> god awful manager and, and he still looks really good every week. Um, so that's my thought on the Lampard appointment. And then in terms of Von de Beek, we were chasing him. It's interesting that, you know, we sack Marcel Brands effectively uh, and then we make three signings that Marcel Brands had on his shortlist. Very interesting. Von de Beek was one of those. We tried to get him in the summer. Uh, United rejected for God knows what reason, because we all know that, you know, they dropped what 35, 40 mil on him. And then Solskjaer just, you know, relegated him to the bench for no reason. Um, and we need midfielders because Abdullah Decore is out for at least a month. Same with Fabian Delph, who has been surprisingly decent this season in the little time that he's played because he is injured so often. So I like Von de Beek. I think it makes a lot of sense for us on loan. Um, a, a good midfield option can both play as, as a creative attacking midfielder, also could play as an eight. And then Deli Alley, this transfer is only going to go one of two ways. It's either going to be brilliant or it's going to be a disaster. But the good thing is that the disaster is very mitigated because of the structure of the deal, Justin. And, and, and it is confusing because here's basically what it is. He's come to Everton on a free effectively right now, but there will be transfer fees based on the amount of appearances he makes. So once he hits 20 appearances for the club, that triggers the first 10 million pounds of, of the deal. But the funny thing is, Justin, is that since he's cup tied, he played in the FA Cup for Tottenham he can only play a maximum of 18 games for Everton this season. So we will not pay a penny at least until the beginning of next season for Deli Alli, other than his wages, obviously. And I actually don't know what that, what that number is. I haven't seen it flowing about what his wages are. I'm assuming they're not huge, but probably, you know, probably somewhere around the hundred K mark, which is, you know, definitely sizable. Um, so I, I like the deal. I, I think, you know, obviously Lampard is one of, if not the best attacking midfielders of all time, probably next to Zinedine Zidane. And, and if anyone's going to be able to revive Deli Ali's career, it's going to be Lampard. And, you know, he's been around for so long. People forget Deli Ali is only 25, which is quite staggering, to be honest. I couldn't really believe it. I thought he was, you know, at least 27, 28. By now he's 25. So, uh, overall, I'm happy with these two deals. I'm happy with Lampard being appointed. I think we're in a significantly better spot than we were, um, you know, just, you know, about a month ago, even when the window opened, we, we thought Benitez was untouchable as Mashiri had just gotten rid of brands basically for him. Uh, and yeah, so 
I think we'll stay up now. I'd be kind of shocked if we didn't. You look at the squad, you look at potential starting 11, and, you know, it's not a, oh, too big to go down. But you look at that team, and there's just – it can't happen. It can't happen, especially with players coming back from injury. Calvert-Lewin, Richarlison, you know, once we get to Corey back, we're going to have a lot of options. This is the deepest the squad's been in a long time. So uh, that was a very comprehensive answer, Justin. But, yeah, overall, satisfied. Extremely comprehensive. Uh, thank you for that. And we can move from your team making big signings to avoid the relegation drop to another team making major signings as well. The biggest spending club of the window, Newcastle United. I think a lot of people, you know, expected them to spend big and boy, did they deliver, right? Do you think, um, do you think that they uh, had enough with their signings? Obviously bringing in Bruno Guimaraes, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, Dan Byrne, Chris Wood, Trippier. These are a lot of signings to bring in uh, in one transfer window, especially for a team uh, fighting relegation. Do you think it'll be enough for them to stay up? Um, I do. I, I do. I think, Bruno, I think it's Gimarish is the is the correct way to pronounce it. Um, you know, really, that's a huge coup for them. You know, we saw them linked with a lot of names and, you know, just a lot of teams kind of turning them or a lot of players turning them down as a project just you know i'm sure if they can survive then there'll be a, a, a much better proposition to be attracting more talent but it's a big coup for them really solid midfielder chris wood obviously not only is, is strengthening them especially with callum wilson out for a while but is significantly weakening burnley um so overall i think they they will stay up i think it's going to probably be norwich watford and burnley going down i'd love to hear what obby thinks about this one um, to be honest, I haven't been following the January window too much on the bottom of the table race, but uh, I think it's uh, pretty interesting that Newcastle's like trying to buy a bunch of players right here at the end because it's really felt like they were a team that was going down. So, you know, I figured the money was going to come in while they were in the championship and they were just going to roll through that. But it should be interesting. I mean, Everton's had some bad form, but they had some good transfers in. Uh, you know, Norwich is starting to find their form. So I think it's just going to set up a good battle for the end of the season. Yeah, I, I think that definitely. I I would hate to see Norwich go down because of Sargent, but I think it's looking to be, I think, I think it's looking that way. I think Newcastle will probably hop them. Um, obviously they have a game in hand and then Watford and Burnley looking more likely, of course, Newcastle taking Chris Wood from Burnley, uh, from Burnley. And then Burnley, in my opinion, making an upgrade, uh, for a, a, a cheaper amount of money in Veghorst. I mean, that is sensational business from Burnley, in my opinion, to, to sell a player for, you know, th that release clause that, uh, Newcastle triggered for 20 million, but, Newcastle should have just gone after Vegas themselves because he, he's a better player and it costs less money. I mean, fantastic business for Burnley. I don't think it'll be enough to keep them up, unfortunately for them, but uh, I like the business. Yeah, 6'6 six, six striker playing for Sean Dyche. What could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> uh, good point. And then uh, it was Conte, right, who's been saying he doesn't have a squad, he needs more players. Uh, it's not he's not good enough to compete for a top four even and he, he made big moves he brought in Betancourt and Kulisevsky uh, both big names obviously uh, to bring in for Tottenham Hotspur so 
we've been saying that we think they're going to make top four already. Uh, I believe that this can only help them in that pursuit. What are your thoughts, Garrett? Yeah, I like Kulisevsky a lot. I think he's a really good young player. Um, you know, a playmaker kind of cutting in from that right side. And, and Benton Kerr is a significant upgrade on Giovanni Lo Celso, who they've sent out on loan to Villarreal. You know, a signing that has not worked out. Obviously, they they sent Ndombele out as well. Still their record transfer, I believe. That also has not worked out. Um, I, I think Spurs are in a good position, especially considering that West Ham and Arsenal did pretty much nothing in this window. And I think you can include United in that as well. So they've strengthened the teams around them uh, have not. Um, so I think Spurs are, are definitely in a good position, Justin. Yeah. Uh, as you mentioned, David Moyes said uh, they put West Ham put a couple of uh, record breaking, uh, at least for the, for their club bids uh, in, in the January transfer window, just didn't weren't able to uh, make a move go through, but it, uh, but Liverpool did make a move. Uh, Luis Diaz, another very Liverpool-esque signing, in my opinion. Obviously, they, they did it. But, you know, a, a talented winger, not as cheap as maybe they usually get players for, but a player that uh, Tottenham Hotspur were, were very much after. The, the talk was that Liverpool kind of swooped in and, and stole him, but that's not really the case. They, they've been in, him for, in for him for a while uh, I think it's a great signing for them. It, it reminds me of Jota, just a little bit more expensive. Um, and, and I think it will work out well for them. He's He's been really good uh, and deserved that big move. It's a kick in the teeth for Everton is really what it is because in the summer <laughs> on deadline day, you know, Fabrizio Romano's talking about, you know, th- there's a very good chance this happens. Uh, the deal broke down. Um, Spurs came in for him. The talk is that, the athletic report, I think it was David Ornstein who said, you know, Spurs were negotiating for, for a while trying to get him. As soon as Spurs were able to get Porto to drop their price tag, Liverpool then swooped in, matched the effort. Obviously, he's going to rather go to Liverpool than, than Spurs. And there he is. And he's a supremely talented player, you know, has scored just some incredible goals for Porto, both in Liga Nosh and in the Champions League. And I agree. I think he's going to be incredible for them. I think he's a great, um, you know, successor to either Mane or Salah or whoever leaves first, right? They have Jota and Diaz. I think that's two of their front three going forward. Once these, uh, the current front three um, ages out, which is in the not too distant future. Um, And so it sucks for Everton because I I just know that he's going to be dominating us for the years to come. And I am not looking forward to it. Yep. And then uh, lastly, it is Manchester city. Finally, signing a number nine, just not one that's going to play for them right now. Uh, it is Julian Alvarez. I mean, a, a really good signing, uh, in my opinion. Uh, countless clubs were after him, right? But this is one that usually when, when the Manchester clubs go against each other, uh, it's, it's City trying to trick United into getting a player that they don't really want. Uh, and United getting those players, and then they end up flopping. Uh, Alexis Sanchez, Maguire, Fred, we could go on and on. But it's 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 a great signing, in my opinion, for Manchester City. We have uh, the number nine of the future, potentially. Obviously, the Aguero comparisons are unavoidable. But he's, you know, in the Argentinian national team. He's going to stay on River Plate uh, uh, on loan for the rest of the season, at least until July. 
but uh, could be longer depending on what the two clubs decide seem to have a good relationship on it. But the, the transfer obviously is official and he will, he will be brought in uh, to the first team probably next season, whether he'll start or not, we'll see, but it, it has not um, dissuaded city at all from going after big targets in the summer, like Holland. That's what uh, I was about to because, say. Yes. There, the, it has not changed that at all. He Julian Alvarez is looked at as a much longer term project, uh, more similar to Kai Kai than Gabriel Jesus to quote Sam Lee. And yeah, I think that it, it can only bode well for the future and got him at a very, very great price, of course, um, making the most profit of any club uh, this, this window, I believe uh, in the premier league after selling for on uh, and buying Julian for what, less than a third of the price. And while we're talking about Ferran and his new strike partner at Barca is they signed Aubameyang on a free, Justin. It, it, really interesting transfer. I think it makes sense for all parties, to be honest. We know Aubameyang's Arsenal career was you know, pretty much dead. He was getting paid like 350K a week. Arsenal need him off his books, off their books, rather. And you know, moving to Barca is not a bad move for him at all, I think. Um, you know, obviously, we know that he has so much quality and can be one of the best strikers in the world when at his peak, which we haven't seen, you know, pretty much since like Project Restart. Um, but I, I think it, it makes sense for all parties. Yep. Um, Aubameyang really showing, putting his money where his mouth is, right? Taking a massive wage cut uh, to, to go to Barcelona and, and get some playing time. Obviously, Arteta didn't want him anymore. That seemed pretty clear. But yeah, I think, I think it'll be a good move. Uh, all around in a Triore as well, going not on a free, obviously, but uh, also going to Barcelona from the Premier League. So Barcelona stacking up on some, on some Prem talent for sure. And with that, I think that's going to call this episode to a close. Abby, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, be sure to follow him on Twitter, USMNT Don, and his YouTube. You can look at the full roster breakdown, as Justin mentioned earlier, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at U90Football. That's U90Football. We'll see you at our regular time next week on Tuesday. So until then, have a great rest of your week. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you once the Premier League is back.